Uh, you have a handout that uh, you should have gotten if you didn't get one. I have a few more. It looks like this. This is just kind of your guide uh, for this weekend, for tonight and for tomorrow. And uh, we'll have about 20 minutes or so, hopefully, uh, to have some table discussion time. I want to make sure we impact our hearts with this. So uh, there's some discussion questions there that should be pretty easy to follow once we go through the material um, that we're going to do right now. Well, I've always loved the life of King David. And so uh, this was an opportunity to kind of selfishly get a chance to delve into uh, his life just a little bit. But to do it in two messages, we had to figure out a, a way to do that. So I'll show you how we're going to do this in a moment. I want to talk about kind of the end of our lives for just a minute. Ever since time began, when men approach the end of their life, we become more and more contemplative. We understand that our time is gone. We reflect on our lives, and I'm sure that it just feels like it's gone so fast. Where did the time go? In many cases, we try to encapsulate that which is most important to us, and we want to do this in words for those who come after us. We want to leave words behind for our our children, for our grandchildren, for our friends and family. We're the most aware of our failings. We look back on our life and we say, I know where where we failed. And we're also the most aware of our successes. We're the most aware of those things that that went well, the things that we did well. And so it's been human nature to want to encapsulate those thoughts in what we often call last words. Those are very important to us. Now, as believers in Christ, uh, it's our hope that our lives become less and less distracted and more and more focused on Christ more and more focused on eternal realities and living a life that's pleasing to the Lord right now so that our last words have something worthwhile, that we have something to say, that our last words are filled with satisfaction and having sought after the Lord with all of our heart. To be filled with the satisfaction that we never took our eyes off the cross, that we were more sanctified with every year that passed. Certainly we don't want to look back over our whole lives, particularly before we came to Christ, and and be guilt-ridden over that. But after coming to Christ, we should see a steady growth toward Christ-likeness, and that's what we want to look back on. Well, we have an example of the last words of a man that God loved. In fact, a man that God said, this is a man after my own heart. We have the last written words of King David, and we have these in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And if you turn there with me, we're going to look at the first seven verses, and we'll do this tonight and tomorrow. As you find 2 Samuel 23, I want to just give you some context about King David. I don't know how familiar everybody is with the Old Testament, so I'm going to just start with some basics here. King David was undoubtedly the greatest king that Israel ever had, no doubt about that. David believed so wholeheartedly in the God-anointed nature of the kingship of Israel that even when the first king of Israel, Saul, repeatedly tried to have David killed, David never retaliated. And as a matter of fact, when Saul was, was badly wounded in battle and then later killed, David tore his clothes, he wept, and he fasted because the king of Israel was dead. And on top of that, The man who thought he was doing Saul a favor by putting him out of his misery came to David bragging about it, and David had him killed. He said, you dared to put your hands to kill the Lord's anointed, and you'll pay with your life. He loved the kingship of Israel. He respected it. 
He was brave in battle, even in his elderly years, so much so that, that eventually he had to be rescued out of battle and his men surrounding him saying, that you're done, you're not going to battle anymore, you're too old. He was a phenomenal leader of men. Men took to him, but just magnetically, they were instinctively loyal to him. His men loved him so much that you recall one occasion when the Philistines had taken over his hometown of Bethlehem. Now imagine that. An enemy comes and takes over your hometown. So, of course, he has the armies of Israel there, uh, his, his armies. David said longingly, this is just more of a, a whimsical thought. He just happened to mention, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, small problem. The Philistines were between them and that well. Well, his men were so loyal to him that three of his mighty men battled their way through the Philistine camp, got some water from that that well, battled their way back through so that he could drink it. And he felt so guilty that he said, far be it for me to ever drink this at the cost of the blood of my men, and he dumps it out. Now we say, what? Why would you do that? His men in his culture would have been deeply impressed with his love for them. By the fact that he did that. They were so loyal to him. It seems like everything he did created loyalty to his leadership. He was unafraid to slay his enemies. He would do it without a second thought. And he was equally unafraid to be merciful and tender and kind when it was called for. He was God's instrument to bring Israel's enemies to their knees. He defeated the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Edomites, a number of other nations. As a result, he took the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, it had been taken by the Philistines. He was also an example to Israel of a man who loved the Lord deeply. You recall when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem as they were establishing Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He offered burnt offerings, he offered peace offerings, and he blessed his people, just worshiping the Lord unashamedly. He was an amazing combination of manly toughness and a tender-hearted affection with those he loved. He was an emotional man. When he rejoiced, he did so with all of his heart. And when he grieved, he sunk to the depths of despair. And he went in every direction emotionally you can imagine. He enriched Israel with the spoils of war. And what that did was it created a very healthy economy in Israel where there was, there was safety for farming and for keeping herds and for trade. David organized the, the Levites. He organized the worship musicians so that Israel in David's day worshipped God like no generation ever did before and frankly no generation ever has afterwards. He organized 4,000 temple musicians or tabernacle musicians rather and 300 uh, full-time singers just to worship God. And they rotated through in that fashion. Well, the the writer of Chronicles gives kind of a synopsis of David's kingship. 2 Chronicles 11.9 says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, if you read the account of Chronicles, the, the account of David in Chronicles, that's a shining, gleaming account of David that, that really doesn't do him any, uh, any injustice at all. You would think he was nearly a perfect man. Well, in Samuel, though, we see his mistakes. We see his sins. As successful as he was as a king, he made equally monumental mistakes. 
and sinned against the Lord in devastating ways. His family was a mess. Many of his sons were a great disappointment. He had eight wives. He had multiple concubines. He had 19 sons that are named in the Bible. There are other sons that are unnamed by concubines. His third son, Absalom, nearly successfully took the kingdom away from him. And Absalom was killed in a counterattack battle. Within his own leadership ranks, people were so loyal to him and they knew that he was the goose that lays the golden egg. And they vied for power under David's structure, so much so that some of his men took to killing one another to move up in position next to David. David grew in pride at his kingdom, and he sinned against the Lord by taking an unauthorized census, believing that it was him who had built the kingdom and not God. And of course, we all know that David's darkest hour was his committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband to cover up his own sin. Well, to sum up David's life, we have the last words of King David. These are not his actual last spoken words. These are his last written words. It's his final poem. It's his literary legacy to all of us. It's a poem. It's a literary masterpiece of a song which speaks of the ideal of a king who is led by the Lord, a king guided by the fear of God. So we want to just read this whole poem, and then we'll take tonight and in the morning to go through it bit by bit here. 2 Samuel 23, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Just in the first reading of this, you can see that this is a, this is a deep, intensely personal uh, poem. Much of it seems to not make sense to us. And so hopefully we'll be able to kind of take it apart and get some more understanding and insight into David's heart. Now, David knows this doesn't accurately identify him. It doesn't accurately describe him. It's an ideal picture. It describes an ideal king. And certainly, if you're familiar with the coming reign of Jesus Christ, you see the parallels. You see Christ in this poem here. We see David here depicted in all three major offices of a Messiah-type king. We have him as the prophet. He's received the oracles of God. We have him as a priest. He's leading the worship of Israel. And we see him, obviously, as a king, the anointed of the Lord. So this is certainly foreshadowing the ultimate Davidic king, which is Christ. But we want to focus on David at this point. We certainly could could look at the, the prophetic aspects of this for equally long. But we want to look at David. David was the undisputed greatest king of Israel. Absolutely bar none. There's no one even close. But his failings were glaring. And when he sinned, he went all out. He sinned big. For David 
This is what we title this poem. The title would be, The King I Should Have Been. And so for us, what I want to hopefully help us do is to help us avoid, at the end of our life, having the title of our last words be, The Man I Should Have Been. We want to be able to say that we follow the Lord with all of our heart. What David reveals to us in this poem is is the heart of his heart, the righteous thoughts that came eventually to pervade his heart and his mind. So what we want to do very simply is we want to just extract some lessons from the life of David. And we want to observe ten thoughts that godly men think. We want to go to the heart of the matter, quite literally. Ten thoughts that godly men think. Why do we do this? I'm becoming more and more intently aware in my own life that thinking defends, uh, defends us against unrighteousness when we think righteous thoughts. And our thinking is what leads us into sin. Everything that we do that is sinful or righteous starts right here. It starts in the mind. It starts with how we think. Now, for me personally, as I went through this, by the time I finished studying for this, for, I ended up with enough material. We could be here till Thursday, and we, we would still not run out. This deeply impacted me because it really, you know, I can't talk to you unless I've examined my own heart. And as I went through this and looked at all the thoughts, I should be thinking, boy, you just realize how filthy a man you are and how much wasted time we spend thinking sinful thoughts when we're just, we just go in neutral. And neutral for a man is downhill. It goes downhill quickly. Your thinking determines your actions. All righteousness starts with your thoughts. All sin starts with your thoughts. This is why Paul commanded us, In Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So we'll do about five of the ten tonight if we have time, and then we'll do the rest in the morning. Very simply, number one, a godly man thinks humble thoughts. A godly man thinks humble thoughts. Now David says this is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. An oracle just means a divine saying, something that God gave him. God is the author of the oracle. Now, what do we know about David's father, Jesse? We don't know a whole lot, but we know that he was, uh, his father was Obed. His grandparents were Boaz and the Moabitess named Ruth. He was a modest landholder. He was a shepherd. He lived in the area of Bethlehem. He was an elder in the, in the city of Bethlehem. It's from the tribe of Judah. That's about all we know. We just know that he was a modest man. He was not a great man. He was just an average run-of-the-mill guy. Well, to call David the son of Jesse, there were two connotations to this. Two things that this meant. First of all, it was a put-down. It was an insult. Um, In 1 Samuel 22, beginning in verse 7, Saul says this, King Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? It was, a, it was an insult. He goes on, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. It was a cut down. Same thing in 1 Kings 12. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. It was a put down. It was a cut down. It was, it was humbling. Who's this family? Who's Jesse? He's just some shepherd. 
But then it came to be a revered title. It came to be a title of honor. First Chronicles twenty nine twenty six. Thus David the son of Jesse reigned over all of Israel. And I think ultimately we find that the title son of Jesse becomes very honored because in Isaiah 11, this is the title given to Jesus Christ. That he is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now the first way David identifies himself here, he says essentially, I'm the son of a shepherd. I am the son of a modest man. The first time we meet David, he's in the fields tending flocks. And in his last words, he describes himself as a simple shepherd. He didn't have a royal family to point back to. And I don't think he would have, even if he had the option. Men in particular, and women, but we'll just point at the guys tonight. Men can begin to act in a way in which they feel entitled We feel entitled with our wives. We feel entitled with others. We feel entitled with our children, with co-workers, uh, with, with people in the church. You guys, myself included, we have a propensity to very subtly begin to think that because of your family background, because of your education, because of what you do for a living, because of titles you may have earned, because of skills, because of successes that you've had, that you might deserve just slightly better treatment than someone else. It's subtle. You don't ever think it uh, openly in your own heart and mind. And we forget from whom all those blessings flowed in the first place. Um, I enjoy uh, speaking with unbelievers and who are very proud of their accomplishments. Well, I don't need God because I did all these things on my own. Really, who made the air that you were breathing the whole time you were getting all those degrees? Who, who made the, the food that you ate? And you have to acknowledge that somebody gave me the resources to do all that I've done. In our homes, we can act like entitled, domineering tyrants instead of loving chief servants. And we see the roots of this in God's curse on mankind. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and here's, here's the curse on us and he shall rule over you. This isn't speaking of godly leadership. This is speaking of the curse has impacted us because we tend to dominate people. We tend to be tougher than people and to cut people down and to dominate them, particularly if we see that they're weaker than us. We have a propensity to think more of ourselves than we ought to. That is our nature. We see a lesson about this from the book of James. James 1, 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What's the lesson? Whether you're lowly or whether you're up high, God is going to even us all out. That there will be an evening out. We have a wonderful example of a man who changed how he thinks about himself. Certainly God changed him. His name is Jacob. As a young man, you remember the story of Jacob. He tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright. This was his right as the oldest son to the most inheritance to honor in the the, uh, home. Why did Jacob do this? Well, it's very simple. You can trace it to the root cause in his heart. He believed he deserved it more than Esau. He believed he was better. He believed that he had more right to it. Well, fast forward a century, a hundred years later, how has Jacob's about thinking about himself changed? Jacob's son, Joseph, 
brings him and all of his family to appear before Pharaoh in Egypt. It brings Jacob, rather, to appear before Pharaoh. And listen to how Jacob responds to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a young man, by the way, and asked him a question. How old are you? And that's what young men ask old men. Wow, you're old. How old are you? That's what he does. He says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the years, the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He's 130 years old, and he says, I haven't really lived that long. Most of my days have been spent in evil, and I'm not nearly as great a man as my fathers were. Wow, that's a change in thinking. From stealing the birthright of his, his brother to now believing himself to be the lowliest of men. Let me put it this way. Unentitled men can't be disappointed very easily. If you don't think you deserve anything, you can't be disappointed, right? You can't be disappointed for very long. We're content with the lot that God has has given us. And that's okay. It's okay to be who you are. Let me give you some humble thoughts to think. Because this is all about our thinking. Here's some humble thoughts. I deserve only the wrath of God, so everything else I get is grace. I rejoice when others succeed. That, by the way, is the sign of spiritual maturity. Immature men get upset when others succeed. Mature men rejoice with them. Here's a humble thought. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be. I don't have to win all the time. I don't have to receive thanks or commendation from anyone but the Lord. I don't have to receive thanks. How about this thought? I come from a long line of sinners who rejected Christ. Praise God that He chose me despite my heritage, despite those that came before me. I don't know about you, but I have I have like major criminals in my family history. I mean, I have guys that I wouldn't invite over to dinner. Like, wow, you're my great grandfather. I, I was doing research into my own family history and and found these this famous family that immigrated actually to Canada and um, and then came down. To America, and I thought, wow, this is so neat. And I dug a little bit more, did some research, went to some libraries, and found out that they immigrated because the dad had murdered numbers of people and didn't want to die for it. It's like, well, so much for family pride. That's done. How about this thought? If I'm mistreated, God can handle this. I don't have to stay upset that something happened to precious me. Why do we get upset when bad things happen to us? Because we think we're so important. Show me a man who doesn't lift himself up too highly. I'll show you a guy who can laugh at adversity. Who can smash his thumb with a hammer for the eighth time that day and go, Oh, well, I got, I got one more. At least I got a spare. And always have a positive spin on it. Unentitled men can't be disappointed. Think humble thoughts. Godly man also thinks God-glorifying thoughts. God-glorifying thoughts. The next line of this poem says, The oracle of the man who was raised on high. Now this is the positive other side of the coin of thinking humble thoughts. It's the same coin, but two different sides. David understood that all that he had was because of God. One day he was minding his own business, just keeping his father's sheep, and the next day he was the king of Israel. 
He did nothing in between. In fact, when it says that he was raised on high, this is a particular type of passive verb that means that the one who was being raised had nothing to do with the process whatsoever. That he was just a, a passive participant kind of watching himself being raised up. Oh, wow, this is cool. I'm getting royal here. He had nothing to do with it. He attributed his development as a man, his development as a leader, his development as a king, his development as a worshiper of God to having been chosen and anointed by the Lord. He attributed everything to God. He is the oracle of the man who is raised on high. There's a clear implication here. The fact that David was made king was simply God's plan for him. That's the only reason. David knows it. He knows it could have been another plan. There were a number of brothers ahead of him. He was the youngest brother, and all of them were passed over. It could have been any of his brothers. It could have been another family. It could have been another tribe altogether. David could have died at the hands of Goliath. He could have flung that stone and missed him clean and watched as his own head rolled in the dirt. That could have been his end. He could have died in the Philistine Wars. His, his rule could have collapsed. Absalom could have taken over the kingdom. All kinds of things could have happened. So he gives all glory to God. He knows it's all because of God. And this is the battle that we as men fight. We fight the battle that when we do something well, when we accomplish things, we're tempted to think self-congratulatory thoughts. We're tempted to pat ourselves on the back. And certainly there's a wonderful sense of satisfaction But how about this? Instead of saying, look what I did, say, look what God helped me do. And that may seem like a small change, but I think that's a huge indicator of a change of attitude in a man. And conversely, by the way, same thing goes for guys who don't accomplish anything. The root problem is the same. It's a basic lack of concern for what gives glory to God. I'm not concerned for what gives glory to God, therefore I don't don't accomplish anything. Everything they say and do, they do whatever they feel like. Because there's no regard for what God would receive as glorifying their their lazy, their self-victimizing men who seem to need others to always jumpstart them. Instead of thinking thoughts like, what do I feel like? What do I want? What do I need? You think thoughts like, what would glorify God at this moment? When you're tempted to not do those things you know you should be doing, you simply say, which will be more glorifying to God? So guys who are high achievers and guys who achieve nothing, it's the same root problem. In pride, I'm doing what I feel like doing, and I'm giving myself credit for everything. There's another similar battle related to giving God glory. That is the jealousy and envy of other men. This is something that we struggle with. All of us here know men who seem to touch a dollar and it turns to ten. Like, how do you do that? I touch a dollar, it turns to dust. I've single-handedly taken whole companies down just by buying ten shares of their stock. Because I knew it. They knew, okay, Steve Swartz must have invested in our company because we're out of business. We look at guys who seem to just have everything handed to them on a silver platter. They're smart in school. They know how to do things well. While we struggle in certain areas, well, David knew that what he had was because God ordained it. He didn't give himself credit. This is the same thought pattern we have to have when we're tempted to look at other men with disdain because of what they've accomplished and what they've achieved. Now, when I was a teenager, I had a cousin a number of years older than me, five or six years older. I was lacking in confidence. He was self-assured. 
I lacked basic knowledge on how to manage the world. He seemed to do everything right naturally. I worked hard to be as handsome a Steve Swartz as I could be, and he, without even trying, got called to be on the cover of magazines, quite literally. He came from a family that thrived on love for Christ and love for each other, while my family failed and fell apart. On and on and on. I got to the point over a period of years where I couldn't even stand to be in the same room with him. And you know what the irony was? Is that every time we were together, he treated me with nothing but grace and kindness and goodness and and uh, compassion, generosity. And why was that? Because my thoughts were totally focused on myself and not thinking whatsoever about God being glorified in what I think God has given every one of us, every one of you guys, a different path. And you can't look at the guy next to you except to let you let him help you become better. You can't look at guys to compare to one another. How do you deal with this? I think a great verse for men is Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The key phrase here is the race that's set before us. Run your race. You don't run the race that other guys have. They, they have their own problems, trust me. If you are tempted to be envious of a guy, pick up the phone or send them an email and say, give me the five top challenges in your life. And when you read them, you'll go, whew, glad I'm not you. It'll give you perspective. The Apostle Peter gives instructions in context, by the way, specifically to men. To older men and younger men, here's his instruction. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Wherever you are, we're to think God-glorifying thoughts, thankful thoughts. Why? Because God said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, I give my glory to no one. He doesn't give his glory away, and it's not ours to take away. We give all glory to him. Now, the next thought to think may sound a little contradictory, but just follow along with me. A godly man also thinks kingly thoughts. We think kingly thoughts. David is the anointed God of the God of Jacob. The third line in the, in the poem here. He's the anointed of the God of Jacob. This speaks specifically of God's choice of him as king. David knew he could be lifted above any, uh, above any human limitation. Put it this way, if Jacob was used to begin the nation of Israel, David was used to begin the royal family to rule the royal nation. David's theocratic dignity, his position was conferred to him. It was given to him by God alone and he knew it. In the realm of the kingdom of God, It's important for us to never forget a truth. Listen, 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Speaking of reigning with Christ. Revelation 22.5 says we will reign forever with Him. You were made in the image of God. The original intent of God for creation was for men to rule the earth, to subdue it. Your future in the kingdom of God is as a king, as a lord, as a prince in the kingdom alongside the Lord Jesus. And this works itself out right now. It has immediate implications for this moment. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells you how to think about yourself in regards to being part of the kingdom. 
Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. These are royal, lofty thoughts. You have access to and the ability to think through the word of God, the loftiest and highest thoughts available to man. You have the ability to think things that most men can't even touch. In your mind, through the word of God, as the truths about Christ and the coming kingdom, as they filter through your mind, these are kingly thoughts. Think about Romans 8.29. You're being conformed to the image of his son. And in the, the same verse, Jesus is called the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? That means that you are the brother of a king. That has implications for how you think. Kings and lords and princes, they have a higher obligation to think lofty thoughts, to not be lowly in how they think, to think the right things. You have a higher calling. You have a higher calling than just making it through life one day at a time, just plodding through everything that the Lord sends you. Suffering, trials, blessings, joys, all of it is to make you into one who is worthy to reign with Christ. Everything is. And so you have an obligation to think kingly thoughts. The question in your mind is, is this a thought that the king of kings would want me to think? Is this a thought worthy of my position in the kingdom as a fellow heir with Christ? I think of the true story of a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. He won the medal in the um, South Pacific during World War II. And during a time of a, a time away uh, with his unit, he was uh, having some time of rest and recreation, and he was kind of a wild guy at heart, and he had just won the medal. And he was with his buddies, and they were just hooping and hollering, and they decided that they were going to commit a major crime. They were going to steal a jeep. And this guy, Medal of Honor winner, gets in the jeep to start to start it up, and one of his friends pulls him aside and he says, Not now. He says, you're, you're above this now. You can't do this anymore. And he makes him get out. He wanted him to think thoughts that were better and to be better because of who he was. Martin Luther made the connection between David's humility and his kingliness. He said that his kingliness, that, that he, was, he was kingly and that he spoke of things that were noble and high and lofty and that his humble beginnings made no difference. Listen to what Martin Luther says. He says, quote, of David, How humbly he proceeds, boasting not his circumcision, his holiness, or his kingdom, not ashamed of his lowly stock, that he was a shepherd, for he will speak of other things that are so high that they need no nobility or holiness, and shall be hurt by no sorrow, neither by sin nor by death. The beginning of his life, certainly David was not a king. He was just a shepherd. He was concerned with his own survival and the survival of his sheep. And at the end of his life, he decided, I will think kingly thoughts. Fourth, godly men think worshipful thoughts. They think worshipful thoughts. David calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel in the fourth line of the poem. Now this isn't an arrogant statement. It literally says in Hebrew, the pleasant one of the songs of Israel. It doesn't just mean that he wrote songs. It means that songs were written about him as well. This was the consensus of others, and God certainly confirmed this as dozens of David's psalms are included in the scripture. In fact, this could be translated, the beloved of Israel's songs. 
Now, we can say with ease, I think without any competition whatsoever, that the greatest worship music or words written in history are by King David, inspired by God, used in Israel, used in the church for 3,000 years now. That's a long time for songs to hang around. In Psalm 139, David refers to his thoughts, his worshipful thoughts, three times. And listen to how he thinks about his own thinking. First of all, he says that he believes that his knowledge is something that concerns God. That, that, that his thinking, what he knows, what he believes, what he feels, it concerns God. Psalm 139.2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knew that God was seeing inside his heart and his mind at every moment. David also talks about pondering God's thoughts. That he needed to have his mind and his heart on the things of God. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And he, he had his heart and his mind on worshiping God. And finally, David knows that God desires to cleanse his thoughts. He wants his thoughts to be clean and pure before God. So he says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He's saying, I'm an open book. Clean me out. Get the dark places in there. Just take out the evil and the wickedness that I think. He was so concerned with what he went on in his side of his mind. Listen, guys, the lie we tell ourselves is that we can look around us and we can sit down and we can think whatever we want. We can have fantasies. We can have anything going through our mind and nobody knows. That is just simply not true. It is being recorded in the halls of heaven as those things are not pleasing to the Lord. In 1993, a guy named Maurice Roberts, he published a wonderful little book. It's a devotional book. It's very deep and rich in content. There's 30 chapters devoted simply to thinking worshipful thoughts, thinking Godward thoughts. And he named the book appropriately, The Thought of God. And as you read that book, it's like tearing through steak with a plastic fork. It's just tough to get through because it's so rich. And as you read through it, you say... My thoughts toward God are on a kindergarten level. I haven't even begun to think lofty thoughts. Godly men continually have the default neutral position of their minds. We, as godly men here, we strive to have our neutral position be to naturally go toward worship, to naturally go toward praise, to naturally go toward prayer, to other prayers of praise and thanksgiving. It should be like breathing to us. The last thing you do before you go to sleep should be to be in praise and awe and wonder of God and you just simply pick up where you left off when you wake up. That that's your neutral position and it takes discipline, it takes effort, it takes a decision to do this. Because our neutral position and our sin nature is to go downhill and to be completely consumed with ourselves and then we have to work our way, oh, okay, I'm supposed to be worshiping right now. If you think that, you're already done. You've already lost that battle because it's not natural to you yet. Well, David wasn't the psalmist of Israel just because he was a talented poet. He was the psalmist of Israel because his mind was continually on the Lord and it simply flowed out from his pen, flowed out from his heart. David said it like this in Psalm 16. He said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I guarantee you that if you 
did an analysis. If you spent 24 hours just writing down what are you thinking about right now? What are you thinking about right now? What are you thinking about right now? I'll bet you could find three, five, ten hours of just wasted time thinking about stupid stuff. My wife said don't use stupid in a sermon, but she's not here and probably won't ever listen to this. So, <laughs> Think about it. How much time do we waste thinking idiotic thoughts instead of worshiping God? Be intentional about worshiping God in your thought life. Learn songs. Memorize scripture. Review sermons. Whatever it takes. And it takes putting lots of material into your heart, into your mind. To be worshipers. Look, I've done a lot of counseling over the years. And with those who are having struggles in relationships, struggles in their marriage, struggles in dealing with life in general, it always has one common denominator every time that the thought life does not go naturally toward worship. The thought life goes naturally toward feeling sorry for myself or for my problems or how I need to change my wife, how I need to change my life, how I need to change everything instead of going toward worship. I'll put it this way. If you master this one area of thinking worshipful thoughts, this will automatically translate into higher sanctification in every single area of your life. It will impact you more deeply than anything. Well, finally, a godly man thinks careful thoughts. He thinks careful thoughts. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. This one and a half verses here. This is a fourfold claim, by the way, of David that God has spoken through him. I just want to give you a little side note here because this is a question I get asked all the time. He says that the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. He is conscious of having been God's Israel to rule the nation of Israel. But he's also conscious of the God-breathed nature of his psalms. There's often the question as to whether the human authors of biblical books are aware of inspiration, aware that God is using them. I think it's different in different cases. But for David, certainly, this is an affirmation that he knows that the songs given to him were of divine origin. By the way, Jesus affirmed the divine origin of David's psalms as well. This is this little phrase and a half here, it's a wonderful synopsis of the dual authorship of Scripture. That the divine author speaks by means of a human author. And David seems to be aware of this. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. There's not a sense of pride here. It's just a sense this is how God used me. Well, we're not privileged to receive divine revelation in the personal sense. We have a completed Bible. Uh, We don't need divine revelation added to this. The Bible begins at the beginning and ends at the end. I don't know what else you're going to add to that. But there's a definite principle to derive from this. And think about this. The words that David spoke, he spoke as the king of Israel, as the psalmist of Israel, they were to be the words of God. He was representing God to those to whom he spoke. When he departed from this, every time he departed from it, he fell into massive major sin. When he maintained that connection, he was a righteous king that his people loved. Now there's a two-part process here. The Spirit of God speaks to David. David then speaks what the Spirit of God has put into his mind. So here's the standard. This is a high standard. We are to think divine, careful thoughts. Our divine thoughts should inform, filter, dictate what comes out our mouths. 
Every time you've ever said something that you regret, something you know is sinful, those words that they're out, they're headed towards your wife, you know that in point one seconds they're going to get to her ears and you're desperately clawing the air to try to get them back. And you know it's too late. They're out there. They're floating across the airwaves. You dive to try to cover her ears, but she's already heard it. And by the time you get to her, her arms are crossed and she's done. What happened? You didn't filter those words through divine thoughts. You might say, well, you know, David is kind of an exception here. That's not our standard. We don't have the sort of divine access to God that David did. We don't have that. That's true. You don't. You have way more access than David did. Infinitely more. You have a completed Bible. David didn't have that. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have 2,000 years of the study and the preaching and the writing of godly men who have told us how to understand the Bible. You have so much. The New Testament does tell us this is our standard. The standard is you are to speak words that God would speak. Not in the sense of divine revelation, but in the sense of taking all that you've learned about God through Scripture and speaking those words. Here's the standard. The Apostle Peter was telling the church how to conduct itself amongst one another. He gave instructions on how we're to speak. 1 Peter 4.11, listen carefully. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, we've all heard the ad campaigns during election season. They, you have this ad, and then right at the end, this ad was, what did they say? It was approved by John Smith, or by whoever. The, and if, they, if you know you're probably not going to vote for him, they say that really fast. And if they think you are going to vote for him, they say it slowly. Here's the standard for us. Are the words that I'm about to say approved officially by God? Do they pass the test of divinity? Do they pass the test of the Word of God? Do they pass the test of the fruit of the Spirit? Do they pass the test as being something I would say with Jesus Christ standing right here? And I know that sounds like those old bracelets that we used to wear. Uh, what would Jesus do? How about this? What would Jesus have you say? We think careful thoughts. It always starts in the mind. Am I speaking as one who speaks the oracles of God? We're told in the New Testament that our words should be filled with salt, that they should season those around us. Listen to what Proverbs says about the tongue. Proverbs 12, 18, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 2, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. The guy who just talks and talks and talks incessantly, I guarantee you he's going to sin at some point. A man of fewer words has chosen them carefully. Proverbs 25.15 With patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Look, if you're parents of small kids, screaming at your kids doesn't do all that much. But doing this, pulling them up, coming them close and smiling at them, looking them right in the eye and saying, if you do that again, I'm going to stuff your ears into your nostrils. <laughs> and they, oh, he means it. Because you chose your words carefully, you said them softly and you meant it. The thinking of careful thoughts is the guardian for the careful tongue. It always is that way. If something comes out of your mouth that shouldn't have, that means something was in your mind that shouldn't have been there to begin with. You didn't filter 
Letting your mind go wild with sinful ideations, following every sinful rabbit trail, whether in a, a rabbit trail of anger, rabbit trail of lust, or all of you have done this, having imaginary conversations with people, and you get into a conflict with them, and you emerge the clear victor, because it's just you versus you, so you win. <laughs> that is uncareful thinking, and is decidedly unmanly. Put it this way, that's what boys do. Men guard their thoughts and they are anxious to have them filtered so that every word that comes out your mouth is pure. Now think about this. Think about all of your regrets in life. How many times is it connected to things you have said? I think very often it is. Guard your thoughts. Be careful with them. This involves the skill of being diplomatic, being respectful, of being considerate, Instead of saying, you are totally wrong, consider saying, would you be willing to consider a different viewpoint? Instead of saying, let me tell you how I'm feeling, consider saying, could I hear your opinion and then would you listen to mine? Instead of saying, you are in serious sin, perhaps say, have you considered that what you're doing might not be pleasing to the Lord and you're welcome to point out anything in my life that's not pleasing to the Lord. Instead of saying, stop nagging me, how about saying, can I give you an idea for a more effective way to get my attention? You think about your thoughts carefully, especially with those you love the most. Isn't it ironic that the ones that we know are the most committed to us are the ones that we treat like trash with our tongues? We will trash them with our tongues. We'll call our wives names. We'll scream at our kids because we know they're not going anywhere. Then you go to work and your boss calls you names and tells you to do something you don't want to do and you say, yes, sir, and you do it with a smile. What's that about? It's because there's no commitment there. You know he'll cut you loose in a second and you believe your wife won't. And so we treat them like trash. should be the other way around. Careful, divine God-inspired thoughts where we're careful. Think humble thoughts. Think God-glorifying thoughts. Think kingly thoughts. Think worshipful thoughts. And think careful thoughts. I'm going to pray and I'm going to take just a few minutes, about 15 minutes at your table and and talk in a semi-reasonable tones because this is a small room with a bunch of guys. You have some discussion questions there. I want to encourage you to just go through um, a couple of those. Pick a leader to, to lead. The humblest guy can go first. See if you can figure that one out. And I want you to lead uh, a discussion here. And just talk through some of those questions, as many of these as you can. And then uh, I'll come back up and get Dave Dahl up here. Let's pray for just a moment. Our, our Father, I know for me, as I looked at David's last words, and I'm certain for these men right now, all of us, Lord, know the sin that so easily besets us. We know the thoughts that we think that are destructive, that are sinful, that are not pleasing to you. Lord, we're eager to clean house. We're eager to sweep out the closets. We're eager to shed light on the darkness. We're eager to clean sin. And so, Lord, I'd ask you for each of these men here to take one of these five and to make a change that lasts now until they see you face to face and that it might be a life-changing impact that happens in their heart and is translated into all that they do and say. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.